Here's the thing though. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha, and I'm your host for today, and I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey there. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present, and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? What have you been up to? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been up to, you know, not too much, but something that has just been occupying my time way too much is my friends started a a Minecraft server and it's just all I've been thinking about. It's just like I get home and I'm like, oh, how's my farms going? How's all this going? I feel like twice a year I get an urge to play Minecraft for like a few hours There's just something about it. But this is definitely the longest stretch in in quite a while, which I've just been thinking about, you know, my mushroom house and my little (laughs) wheat farm. Yeah, Mitch was over at my, like, family's place the other day and I have a seven-year-old sister who loves Minecraft. (laughs) And I've never seen, like, her be so into a conversation. I know, it was really a bonding moment. The two of them were just going on about Minecraft and I was like, I don't know what's happening, but... The vibes are good, so I'll stay. Yeah, she's telling me about her Minecraft cats. She has, what was it? I think she has 15 cats. Yeah, she's named four of them. Was it Purr? No, I think it's it's Meow. Meow. There's Meow and... It's Purr. Is it Purr? And meow then there's and Meow Jr. and Purr Jr. Those are the four. <laughs> Those are the four named. that she's named. And she's also got like a pet spider and it like tried to kill her and then she had to like lock it in a little aquarium mm. and she's just keeping it, which I don't understand, but... We've got to get you on Minecraft. We've got to set up a here's a thing though, Minecraft community server. Yeah, we have a little commune and a we grow commune, yeah. <laughs> veggies in our anti capitalist paradise. Yes, sounds great. How was your fortnight? Yeah, um, it's been all right. I mean, we were really busy last fortnight, which is why an episode didn't go up. Mm. And I feel like it's kind of stabilized again now. I'm still obviously working just as much as I did before, but I'm not doing as many like after hour stuff. So Yeah, for sure. It's definitely Better. It's good. Um, And it's Ramadan. Yeah. Which is really nice. I just feel like you're just a more peaceful person during Ramadan. Like, whether or not you fast or, like, care about Ramadan, I just feel like there is a shift in Mm. the cosmos. And it's just, like... Just good vibes. It's just good vibes. I feel like I don't get nearly as stressed out. And I there is definitely, like, an inherent sense of peace or at least less misery than usual. And it's actually really nice so i'm really glad that it's ramadan best time of the year it's been pretty chill i've moved my hours up from work so now i work the 7 a.m to like 3 30 p.m and i actually love it like it's so good i have like an afternoon free after i finish work and now like now that i'm okay with getting up early you know what who knew that getting a full night's sleep was so good for you (laughs) (laughs) like i've been sleeping early to get up on time for work I'm like, wow, I'm so refreshed. My brain, it's at full capacity. I am not slugging my way through my day half dead. Like I'm actually like functional. It's crazy. That's the other good thing about Ramadan is that it just forces you to have- A routine. Some discipline. Yeah. And when you go to sleep, a routine, because you know, like you're going to regret it if you don't. It's like you're already going to be like hungry. So you're not going to make your life more difficult by also being like tired and doing things. So you're actually going to get your shit together. And- it has been good for me. So I am good. I'm wondering if I also need to fast in my Minecraft game. 
I'm already vegan in the Minecraft thing. You know. Well, then by principle, if you're already vegan in Minecraft, <laughs> <laughs> might as well fast. Might as well. Anyway, let's get into some follow-up for today because we actually have quite a bit to get through. I feel like it's a while since we've had like a really long follow-up, but today there is a lot. The first thing that I wanted to talk about was Bridgerton because that came out like a week or two by the- Mm. A week or two ago? A week sounds right. I don't know. I've lost- Time is flat circle. Anyway, it has come out by the time you listen to this episode. And it came out to really mixed responses. And I think for once, I had a much kinder (laughs) view of Bridgerton season two. Like, you guys know that we have an episode on Bridgerton season one where we kind of criticized the colorblind casting because it just, like, is not a concept that they were executing well or even doing well at all. I just don't really know how much I believe in proper colorblind casting. But it was not good in Bridgerton and they were just reinforcing colorist stereotypes and giving all the black leads trauma. Like it was just a mess. You can listen to the episode if you want a more elaborate dive into that. And then with season two, we were introduced to Kate and Edwina Sharma, who are two new leads. They are women of color. They're played by Tamil actresses. Um, They play Indian characters. They are dark skinned. They are beautiful and they are leads, which has been really exciting for pretty much every like South Asian woman that identifies with them. And it was like a really big move for diversity and a big move for Bridgerton because unlike... The previous roles, this one was not colorblind casting. They were cast as Indian women, like in the show they are. Their characters are Indian. Their characters have come from India to England. They partake in like cultural practices. There's like haldi ceremonies. They wear jumka earrings. They make chai the way it's supposed to be made. It's like, it's nice. There's like little touches of culture. But one of the key criticisms, and like, I guess I should issue a spoiler, but by now most of you have seen it. What? It came out like a week ago. I think it's two weeks by the time this episode comes out. It came out two weeks ago. I'm so slow when it comes to watching TV. But yes. I'm not going to watch it, so you can spoil it for me. I but think, spoiler alert. I, yeah, spoiler alert if you care. But I think most people who care about Bridgerton have probably watched it by now. Very well. But a key criticism has been that the race representation is empty or it falls flat or it wasn't in-depth enough. And I didn't feel that way when I watched it. And I feel like I'm pretty critical of any and all race representation in media. And I wasn't going into Bridgerton with high hopes at all. In fact, I feel like I was quite cynical. But I thought it was lovely. Like, I thought it was very gracefully done. I think there's beauty in nuance and subtlety. And I liked that the characters' races were not the point of their characters, as can so often be done. Like, I don't want a race trauma story. Mm. And I think maybe some people were disappointed because that's the only type of race representation that they know. Like, it's not race representation unless it comes with, like, the difficulties and traumas of being part of that race. And I, like, don't think I agree with that. I think most of the time you need it in order to have a meaningful character but it wasn't necessary in Bridgerton in my personal opinion as a dark-skinned brown like South Asian woman I thought it was really great I read an article that I'll link in our sources about Kate Bridgerton in particular and how I thought Shondaline did a really good job in making her culture and her race like part of her characterization I felt like she was written as a brown woman. Like it wasn't like they wrote a white character and then gave her dark skin and gave her like yeah. a haldi ceremony. Because that's the issue with colorblind casting. You know, the intentions may be pure, but it sort of reduces representation to like purely an aesthetic thing. Like what is the color of their skin? 
but yeah. it doesn't recognize that there's more context. Yeah, like, like being... the, the decisions that they make would be informed by their culture, exactly, like the yeah. way they behave, the way they perceive conflicts would all like be impacted by like the culture or the race that they're from. And I think that was really well done with the Sharma sisters. Like I think Kate really exemplifies like eldest brown daughter and the traumas that come with that. And like Edwina, I think really exemplifies younger sibling privilege when it comes to South Asian families. I think their dynamic is fascinating people kind of hated it because in the books they're very close but in the tv show like they have a huge rift and they have a huge fight which they end up making up after but like there is a big rift between edwina and kate and like it seems that audiences especially white audiences from the reviews that i was reading at least don't understand why these characters are doing what they're doing they don't find them relatable they don't find they don't understand their decisions like they don't understand why kate is doing xyz and like why edwina was mad at kate like they don't understand it and i just think like that's just because you don't understand like experiences that aren't white because these experiences to me are inherently like very south asian just like the struggles that they're having the inter-sibling struggle of a immigrant brown household is real i say as the eldest daughter in like a brown household with younger siblings that i have tensions with like your life experiences are completely different the way you navigate the world is and there are you're gonna butt heads because you as the eldest sibling have like competing interests because you want to protect your younger sibling you're also probably a bit controlling because you're used to having to step in as the parent there are issues there are like personality flaws that you're gonna have to deal with on the other hand your sibling to you comes off as like maybe a bit self centered or like selfish or they have the freedom to make decisions without the burdens that you have that hold you back like there are tensions whatever i mean you can read a bit more about it in my article but the point was i thought it was beautifully done i thought it made so much sense i was watching it and i was like i have never felt so seen in my life i don't think i ever really feel represented ever because i'm a minority within a minority within a minority being a like hijab wearing woman as well so i just like don't fit in anywhere but like that shit was good to me and I was honestly disappointed by so much of the criticism because some of it felt like it was in bad faith as well I think it's these mostly from like white critics okay that, yeah so that, this is what I mean is like there is a mix of criticism so right. I think the main criticism from white critics is Kate and Edwina are not realistic characters they don't make sense it's bad writing they're shallow I don't understand their motivations right and that's just easily dismissed yeah you know? easily dismissed because y'all just don't understand like you just don't empathize with brown people like you just don't empathize with people that aren't you and you're used to seeing whiteness as the default and you're used to like the unspoken or implied rules of whiteness and you're used to like just understanding characters because they're you you're just used to being represented actually essentially yeah. whereas i rarely you know empathize with a lot of characters on screen especially main characters they tend to frustrate me with their decisions because i'm not white so the decisions they make especially the selfish ones i'm like i don't get it you're just this is just this character is annoying i don't understand why everyone loves them now you're just in my shoes <laughs> now you just know how i feel but there is criticism from like particularly lighter skinned north indian south asian viewers where it's like come from an overly cynical kind of bad faith position to me where it's just like oh because you're not being represented because it's this representation for not just like all dark-skinned south asians as well but like these are the male women who are like you know historically persecuted and marginalized to this day like this is a persecuted minority that is getting representation and i just feel like i'm seeing more more privileged brown folk like kind of ruining this for darker women and what they think it's tokenistic or? Well, they're just like, this is like, well, first of all, I've had seen accusations of saying that it's like fake representation. It just caters to the white gaze, which I don't right. agree with because okay. it's like, no, it just doesn't cater to you. Like you are South Asian, but don't 
necessarily identify with this form of representation and therefore you think it's bad representation but what people aren't acknowledging is that like there is not one way to be south asian there is not one form of brown representation that works for everybody like the writers of this show clearly took a very specific type of brown girl and they represented her and just because you're not her doesn't mean this is not brown representation. I also like had a really good conversation with a friend of mine about it because she is part Tamil and she was talking about how it's not lost upon her that some of the criticism that this is getting from like lighter skinned Desi people is like this criticism was not held towards shows like Never Have I Ever and like other kind of modern representations of Indian women because they represent a kind of middle class Right. Lighter skinned, more privileged Desi woman. And like now with these two Tamil actresses getting so much hate, by the way, as well from like South Asian people. And it's just like, it's colorism. Like y'all are just colorist. <laughs> like this is, there is internalized racism here. There's a Tamil activist that I follow on Instagram and she like made the really good point, which I agree with and I'm also guilty of, where she was saying that like so many Indian people and Pakistan, just like other like South Asian people that aren't, Tamil are like so racist right to this minority exclude them from the from like the group of being South Asian exclude them in like pretty much every capacity but now that we have mainstream attractive popular representation of Tamil women suddenly they're all representation for all brown women and suddenly like they like we've reabsorbed Tamil women into desiness which I thought was really interesting and really true and I'm guilty of that as well because like maybe this isn't representation for all brown girls like me maybe it's just Tamil representation and I have decided to co-opt it like that I think there is something interesting to say about that Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like what I'm hearing is that we're seeing a problematic binary between white and non-white as being two universals. Like there's the white experience, which is monolithic, but then there's also the non-white experience, which some people perceive to be as as monolithic. But it's not. And then when stuff like this, from what it sounds like, maybe problematizes that experience being universal, the non-white experience then. Yeah, well, exactly. There are so many ways to not be white and this is just one of them, but- like, I think people just, like, think that non-white representation means all representation for everybody who isn't white. And that's just not true. Like, this is a very specific type of character that they're trying to relay. And that's fine. And if anything, like, that's progressive. The idea that they're not trying to cater to every single, like, brown person and that they're trying to cater to a very specific type of brown person, I think is cool. And, like, we are not going to get diverse stories unless, like, we allow these diverse stories to exist because now that we're actually getting stories that don't have like this one narrative that we always get for brown girls like this is a good thing the more we encourage this the more we're going to have brown storytelling i'm not saying there aren't valid criticisms of bridgerton and its race representation i think that the male one is probably the key biggest criticism also criticisms about like the brown characters not getting as much screen time not getting as much depth like okay like sure there is a bit of that and i'm like open to that but i think blanket statements around these characters not being relatable or like not being accurate is actually just bad faith and i just wanted to put that out there 
We also wanted to bring up a newspaper cover that Anthony Albanese did, the opposition leader for Labour, with the Daily Telegraph around a week ago that Actually, we thought. Yeah, two weeks ago. It just came out as we published last week's podcast, so we just missed it. Yeah, so we would have talked about it then, but we think it's still relevant for a few reasons. By now, you've probably come across it because it was just so ridiculous, such a joke. I feel like it would have been so apt for us to talk about it last week because we were talking about the Trumpification of politics. And then, lo and behold, Anthony Albanese is on the front cover of the Daily Telegraph saying, I will not be woke. I am not woke. I will steer Labour away from the left. I don't believe in council culture. I don't believe in trans rights. Okay, he didn't actually say that, but I felt like it was implied. But disclaimer, don't sue us. He didn't actually say that. But yeah, it just had like a whole bunch of really problematic anti-left-wing stuff, which we thought was very funny considering how many young left-wing people actually want him for prime minister. Yeah, I think it's so, I mean, it's interesting and it's just sort of, you know, it's, it's just such a spectacle because we saw what I feel like was the same thing happen with Biden and Trump, yes. you know, in the, the 2020 election, which was essentially Trump as this far right figure, which I think was mostly, I mean, mostly unpopular in America, but still very polarizing. And he was adored by, you know, a very large sort of voter base across America. And then Biden, instead of using like the Democratic Party as presenting opposing views, it was more like, no, actually, you know, Trump is inept and I'm going to be a better Trump than Trump was. It's about trying to get those right wing voters because the left wing voters, or at least, you know, like the center left or just the the centrist voters are already going to vote for the Democrats to get the the Republicans out. I feel like we're seeing the same thing here. It's like this faith that, you know, people are so fed up with Scott Morrison. The people who oppose liberals are just going to vote for Labour anyways, just to get them out. So it's no longer about trying to appeal to that demographic, but it's just about trying to appeal to the people who would typically vote for liberal and just try and say, oh, I'm actually a better fascist than Scott Morrison is. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, I mean... I think Labour can rely on legacy voters, right? Like people who vote Labour don't care who is at the forefront of Labour. They just vote Labour, not because they're passionate about Labour, but because they're passionate in opposing Liberals. They'll vote for whoever the opposition to Liberals are, and that's Labour, which like isn't problematic in its own right. It's fine, and that makes sense because we all, you know, well, a lot of us hate Liberals and hate Scott Morrison, But I guess the problem with that and like not having, I guess, a standard for what you expect Labour to be held to and just knowing that you're going to vote for whoever is in Labour so long as it's not Scott Morrison means that Labour can take advantage of you and they can do whatever the fuck they want because they know you will vote for them. They don't have to earn your vote. They don't have to earn your trust. They don't have to like appeal to you, which is, I mean, the point of a democratic election is that like the person that you're electing like is offering you something that you want and that's why you're voting for them. But Labour doesn't need to do that with Labour voters. They don't have to offer you anything because they know you hate Scott Morrison enough that you'll vote for what they consider the lesser evil. You know who they do need to earn the vote of? Liberals. And so it makes sense that Anthony Albanese with his stupid like Daily Telegraph, I'm not woke situation is that he knows that all these young like Labour people are going to vote for him, but he needs to win over Scott Morrison's votership and he's going to do that by being Scott Morrison without the embarrassing stunts. Like, that's his strategy. His strategy is, I am just as right-wing as Scott Morrison, but I'm smarter than him too, which is, like, terrifying. Yeah, exactly. It's like, look, I think even voters like us, not that... 
I think if you listen to the podcast, we will talk more about Ozpel, I imagine, in the coming weeks with the upcoming election. But it's not something that really interests us because we don't think that this is where politics is at, this parliamentary politics. Yeah, we don't really believe that democracy is actually existing in our current state. So, it feels arbitrary. You know, in Australia, we have to vote. But in America, in the time of Biden, there's a lot of people saying, you know, I'm just not going to vote because neither candidates really seem to be you know, in my interests, you know, I just refuse to engage in this farce. In this, this lesser spectacle. evilism. And then you have, and perhaps it's a valid argument that a non-vote is a vote for the sort of dominant party, which in the case of America is Trump and in the case here is, you know, probably liberal. And I mean, I'm sure that's a good argument, but I also wouldn't like take offense to the thought or someone just refusing to engage, just like a politics of refusal, just a politics of this is just fucked and I refuse to be a part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like during the Trump election, when I would see people not voting, it would really upset and infuriate me. As somebody who like doesn't even live in America, like I literally have no stakes in the voting situation over there because like obviously Trump being like a huge Islamophobe was a key, I mean, obviously offensive to all marginalized communities, but because that was the marginalized community that I was part of, it felt personal when people didn't vote against him because it was like oh oh so you want a muslim ban like either you're voting against the muslim ban or you want one is how i felt and i imagine that's how like a lot of people from the marginalized communities in america were feeling where it's like oh if you don't vote and you choose to sit out of this election you're actually condemning me to trump which i don't think is wrong in the sense that like they're right to feel that way and they're right to feel abandoned by you like that is their right but Yeah, the further we get into Australian politics, the more disillusioned I become. Mm. And the more I'm like, does it matter? Look, I also think maybe it's, I don't see American and Australian politics as quite the same because at least in American politics, if we're talking about people like Bernie Sanders and whatnot, like there was for a second a viable candidate in the sense that there was one person that maybe wasn't actually as like just openly right-wing and fucked as everybody else like there was a little bit of hope with australian politics man everything is starting to look exactly the same like Mm. i really can't tell you what the differences in policy are between like the labor and liberal parties because like the one thing that would really like make me want to vote for somebody is their refugee policy like that's probably what i feel the most strongly about is like what are their stances on refugees and offshore detention and both labor and liberal parties are pro offshore detention labor introduced it that's like y'all are the same to me then you're both just as racist as each other both of you are like transphobic both of you are homophobic both of you are sexist both of you have misogyny problems what am i voting for if i vote for labor like even if like i mean scott morrison is obviously fucked but even if we voted in anthony albanese how would that change my material circumstances exactly i don't know if it would i think the argument that i see from you know other labor voters or even people that you know engage in like you know the young labor like left-wing labor voters you you know who i think have a lot of the same worldviews i've spoken to them you know even back in high school when i was like somewhat engaged i would talk to these people and it's like you know you seem to have pretty radical politics why do you feel like the Labour Party is the way to express that. And it's this idea, and we saw the exact same thing happen with Biden in America or any other Democratic sort of candidate, is, oh, like, it's true that Labour doesn't quite align with what I view, but if we get this party in, we can work from the inside to make them more left-wing. So vote them in, and then and we then can change will fight, come. and then we can slowly push them more left. Because, you know, Labour notoriously has a sort of left and right 
division. And, you know, there's a tension between them. But I think that's just not... We ha- that, that just doesn't work. And I think that has never worked. And I don't think it's going to work. And it's definitely not going to work with Albanese. And I think perhaps... Who is openly right-wing, by the way. I don't think enough people understand that Anthony Albanese is a right-wing candidate. Like, yeah. do you all know that? And yes. I mean that sincerely. Like, sincerely, do left-wing Labour voters understand how right-wing... Anthony Albanese is. You are giving that man your vote for the sake of lesser evilism, but what is he going to do that is different to Scott Morrison? Like, do you actually know? But the thing is, maybe they would change if your vote wasn't guaranteed. You know what I mean? If it wasn't like, oh, of course, you know, this voter base is going to vote for this candidate just to get uh, liberals out. Maybe if that vote wasn't guaranteed, then they'd actually have to work for your vote. Maybe they actually then would have to become more left-wing. And, you know, maybe that's not even the case, but I think it's a compelling argument. Yeah, well, I mean, I always just wonder, like, when people say, oh, we'll just vote them in and then we'll make a change. I'm like, how do you expect to make that change? How do you think our politics work? Like, what impact do you think you have as, like, an individual with a passing interest in politics? Like, what do you think? Are you going to personally lobby Anthony Albanese? Like, what is what is the plan? I don't understand, like, what people think they're going to do. I know that sounds, like, condescending, but I, like, am genuinely perplexed because... I feel like so many left-wing people really believe that, like, they're going to create change through voting in Anthony Albanese, and I just don't understand where that's coming from. And I guess we're pointing that out now because the elections are out, the polls are coming out. I mean, there's been a huge scandal recently with Scott Morrison being exposed for racism, which, like, by the way, that was, like, not new information. Exposed for racism. Yeah, like, literally. This is new information. Yeah, that he, like, essentially spread rumours that his opposing candidate in 2007 was, like, Muslim Lebanese. And he was like, you know, we can't afford to have a Lebanese person running the Shire. I'm like, are y'all surprised? I don't understand how this is a scandal. We Mm. know he's racist. Like, I literally, in uni, wrote an article about that cabinet meeting where he was, like, talking about using Muslims as a scapegoat for, like, some political... Like, ages ago, it was, like, 2008, like, that I was writing about. It's just, like, it is... I don't know. This is what a fast Australian politics is. They'll, They'll, like, tell you something that is obvious and pretend it's news. And then even with, like, Anthony Albanese, I just feel like I've seen so many tweets that just make me want to bang my head against a wall. And it's just people being like, guys, just like, I know this sounds like really right wing, but just ch- he's only saying this because he wants to become the prime minister. Like, like, he doesn't mean it. He's just saying all this right wing stuff to get the votes. And I'm like, yeah, that's what they do. They lie to get votes. Why is that not a red flag to you? <laughs> <laughs> like, how is that a redeeming quality? Like, I don't understand how that's a good thing. They're like, don't worry, guys. He's lying. Don't worry. He's that's- just playing like 4D chess. Yes. Like, just, just, this is what like the QAnon folk was Literally, saying about like, Trump. You all sound like, you all sound like conspiracy theorists like you don't understand how silly you sound and you're like left-wing politically engaged people that are like typically quite aware of your political situations i don't understand this like blind loyalty to anthony albanese like what is happening am i like i feel crazy like i honestly feel like i'm in the fourth dimension and i'm just like on a different plane of reality it's like this massive gaslighting i'm like am i I crazy because everyone loves this man and he's like a bad person it's the trumpification of politics yes you can't avoid it (sighs) oh man
And just off the back of that real quickly, I mean, like, a good example of his politics is, like, some of you may have seen, I talked about it on Instagram, is that the New South Wales government has just changed its policies in regarding uh, protesting. So now it is illegal to protest unless it is, like, a state-sanctioned protest on, like, state-approved land for a state-approved cause, which is obviously not... <laughs> yeah. It's no longer a protest then. Like, no. if the government is like, go ahead, stand there with your signs. Like, it's not... You're not, pro- you're not causing any disruption. It's not a protest. I think protesting has, like, effectively really become illegal. And a lot of, like, young left-wing people are really quite upset and shocked by that, as you should be. It's, like, fucking terrifying. How the hell are we going to protest things like climate change now? But what nobody is talking about is that Labour backed that change. Like, our left-wing saviours, apparently... Anthony Albanese, who is going to save us from, like, the tyrannical rule of Scott Morrison, has, like, backed this move to further stifle democracy in this already undemocratic country. Like, this is another example of, like, I think people need to be way more critical of the leaders that they vote for. Make people, make Labour Party own your vote. Exactly. Make them work for your vote. Make them work for your vote. That's how democracy functions. And if they're not working for your vote, the whole system isn't working then. And the last thing I wanted to mention as part of follow-up, I know it's been quite long, but there's just been a lot happening, is that today I covered Alice McCall, Australian fashion designer Alice McCall, sharing like quite wild conspiracy theories on her Instagram, which I know is really random. Like Alice McCall, I just know her as like a fashion designer. Like I don't know who she is. I don't know much about her. And then I was like, this, this is wild. Um, And I actually spoke to her like via pedestrian TV because I was covering the conspiracy theories and it kind of sparked an interest for me and reminded me of our episode on conspiracy theories because when I spoke to her in the DMs, I was like, what is happening? Like, do you believe this? Like, what? And it was she, all like this chemtrail stuff. Yeah. And- just to give you a TLDR, like she was sharing Instagram stories about um, the chemtrail conspiracy, which is essentially a conspiracy people believe where like, you know, those like white streaks that get left in the sky after a plane goes by. It's like, it's just cloud vapor. But uh, conspiracy theorists believe that the government is like spreading like toxic chemicals into the atmosphere and it's like mind controlling us and affecting our fertility and like other like random bizarre things. And related to that conspiracy is the idea of cloud seeding, which is actually like a real thing. But the conspiracy idea of cloud seeding is that the government is like using climate science to like manipulate the weather and like create climate bombs and like control the weather for military purposes. Like it's all very wild. And I mean, the fact that we even think our government is smart enough to do this is the funniest part to me. But anyway, she was, like, sharing these conspiracies. And they're pretty wild. Her stories are not just, like, influencers sharing anti-vaxxer stuff. Like, these are, like, really bizarrely made, clearly QAnon-style, like, videos. It's concerning. And she also shared with all that uh, a lengthy Michel Foucault quote <laughs> from I know. Discipline and Punish, which is one of my favorite books. And it's a fantastic quote. But it's like, girl, <laughs> I don't think you understand, I, yeah. like, the context of what you're sharing. Like, it's clearly... Just like seeing stuff that has the word freedom and don't trust the government and like conflating it all with like super right wing conspiracy theories. But when I spoke to her, what concerned me is that she was essentially saying that she has been hearing she lives in the Northern Rivers and obviously those areas are like suffering from immense flooding at the moment, like climate change driven flooding and like that area, especially like Byron Bay is like underwater right now. Lismore is being flooded again. It's a concerning situation and it's her area and those are like where all the people she knows are from and she said that there's a lot of talk 
in the northern rivers from locals about these conspiracy theories and they all believe it and they're all spreading it in their communities and then she's like hearing it and then she's googling it obviously coming i'm assuming youtubing it with the videos that she's been putting up and like obviously coming across conspiracy content and then like believing it because she has no media literacy and no critical thinking skills she has no ability to differentiate between like you know facts and like just shit people post online but like as fucked up it is that she's sharing this stuff to her audience of thousands and as irresponsible as it is what caught my interest was her talking about how like something is obviously wrong this stuff that's happening is like unprecedented and unnatural in her area the government is being like dodgy and not really providing them the support that they need these conspiracy theories or belief in them or searching for them is rooted in an understanding that things aren't right and in that department she's correct Except their intuition is spot on yeah the intuition is spot on something isn't right like this is wrong climate change is an issue like the government is not giving a fuck about you this is not the way society is meant to function Society is crumbling under capitalism and the average working class person, especially in like a flood affected area, is left behind. Like you're right in being disillusioned, but you're getting radicalized in the wrong direction. And that's what we talked about in conspiracy videos where like it's really concerning because the further we get into like this late stage capitalism, the more people are getting radicalized into conspiracy theories. And we talk about it as it being like just like a symptom of like the digital age. But I do think it's more than that. Like it's a symptom of like awakening, I guess, to like society being uneven or like awakening to injustice, I guess, in a way, but like being completely fucking wrong about where the injustice is. And this is what happens when you don't have like class consciousness and you don't have like an anti-capitalist lens or like education you just like throw the fucking dart at the wall and wherever it ends you're like ah that's that's the issue you know it's this conspiracy well it's also being awakened to the complexity of the world and you know and i think when faced with all of these intersecting issues and people with different agencies and political interests i think sometimes it can just be easier to make sense of that through a conspiracy theory which to us seems bizarre But in another way, it provides at least an understandable or a simpler explanation to why things are so fucked. And also just like, I mean, you honestly don't need a conspiracy with the way this government is behaving. You know what I mean? Like, it makes sense that you would fall into that because like the government's behavior is so fucking nonsensical, so obviously selfish, so obviously like destructive that like it doesn't even take a conspiracy theory to like make you think there is something going on. And I just, yeah, it it concerns me. Especially when she was like, oh, yeah, like everybody in the Northern Rivers is talking about this stuff. I was like, oh, Lord, like how many of you? <laughs> oh, like even just like the five second conversation I had with her was like physically painful because she was just saying stuff like, oh, you know, like I think everyone should do their own research. And I was like, every time I hear that, I just want to, I just want to, sh- oh, like it kills me. I'm like, what amount of research do you think you can do in one hour that these climate scientists have done in their whole lives? Like, I don't know what, show me your research. Like, do you know what research is? <laughs> Can we um, get her to share the conspiracy episode? Maybe we can change her mind. <laughs> well, she was like asking me. She's like, so what do you know about this? And I was like, no, like, we're, not, we're not going there. Like this is misinformation. You are spreading misinformation. But as frustrating as it is to see these people like refuse to like be critical of the conspiracy theory, yet they're critical of everything else. I think we also really need to like be weary of how these conspiracy theories even pop up because inherently they stem from injustice. Yeah. They stem from a correct intuition that things are problematic. Anyway, let's introduce today's topic. So today we are going to be talking about 
TikTok, but specifically about trauma on TikTok, which actually I don't even, I was going to say maybe it sounds niche, but I feel like literally anybody who's on TikTok has come across like trauma talk, trauma talk, hashtag, <laughs> hashtag trauma talk. We're going to be talking about trauma talk and the romanticizing of trauma on TikTok. It is Tumblr repeating itself and it worries me. <laughs> And by the way, just want to issue a quick content warning, obviously, because we're going to talk about trauma and trauma talk. We will inevitably talk about things like sexual assault, suicide and depression and eating disorders, but nothing in depth at all. We just kind of mention these topics in passing, but just to let you know. So let's get into it. God, I feel like TikTok is that like, it's the meme. What is it? All species end like through evolution to the same form. Like, what is it? Like a, like a snake or crabs. crabs. <laughs> yeah. So all species eventually become crabs. Can we say the same thing about platforms? Do all social media platforms become Tumblr? Yes. Is that just like the deterministic conclusion? Yes. <laughs> Look, the chokehold Tumblr has on the world, nobody can ever fully like understand its impact. Tumblr has been like, I'm not going to say out of commission. Everyone's like still on it, but it's been like a cringe thing that nobody talks about for like years. I mean, Tumblr was at its peak in like, 2012 to 2013 that was Mm. 10 years ago and i think it really fell out of relevance in like 2017 to 2018 and yet the history repeats itself (laughs) life imitates art everything is tumblr and we're seeing the same thing on tiktok in so many forms like the tumblrification is what you i think said earlier which i thought was very funny yeah exactly tumblrification yeah the trumpification of politics and the tumblrification of tiktok yes look i think i feel like i maybe have said this before on the podcast at some point that like tiktok is actually repeating tumblr in every way like when it comes to fandoms when it comes to Oh my God, even the like pro-Anna content. A friend of mine and I had a really good conversation about that before because we were on Tumblr like when pro-Anna was a thing, which for those of you who don't know, it was like pro-Anna stands for (laughs) pro-anorexia. Like it literally was an aesthetic like based on like the decaying bodies of anorexic women. Like that was like, you aspired to be that beautiful and thin and dainty. And the images oh, of were like man. really skinny white women with like messy buns and like very like ballerina forms and like black and white pictures and rotting roses. It was like beauty and decay and it was really fucked. And like people were like defiantly pro-Anna, like it was some counterculture and not just pro-eating disorder content. It was really fucked up. Like 2013 was a time and it is a amazing so many of us survived it but anyway like that was reappearing on tiktok they were pro anna we thought we escaped we thought we escaped i thought that was long gone i thought we were in the era of like body positivity and then fucking pro anna read its ugly head on tiktok i mean the good thing is that there is enough pushback on that now whereas pro anna was like the norm on tumblr and you were like different or like woke for like you know being against it like i was definitely like well into pro anna in the early days before i understood that that was problematic so i was like what 14 (laughs) like but yeah i mean tiktok is just tumblr again but something that's really interesting is tiktok's relationship with trauma the thing that inspired this episode actually because trauma talk is not new but there is a recent trend on tiktok to like the gangnam style song which by the way is so random because gangnam style was popular in like also like what 2015 or something like i don't know what is happening with the resurgence of all of these like mid 2010s content it's like i guess now it's just far away enough so it's nostalgic 
Yeah. Maybe that's why. 10 well, years is like the time where you can start being. I think 2010s is just like what the 90s was for us. And we're just getting like older because it's like younger kind of teenagers who are born like in the 2000s mm. that are like into all this like Tumblr content that like, I guess, it's, is this what people like that were born in like the 80s were thinking of us when we were like getting into 90s content when we were teenagers? I don't Perhaps. know. Probably. Yeah. So this trend, it essentially starts off with a person saying a situation or like describing a circumstance, like telling a story, like a one or two sentences. And then like as like the kind of beat drops, the picture shifts to like a PowerPoint style, like really meme like, you know, word transition type of font. And then it, that's like the punchline. That's like the trauma of their story. And these stories are meant to be like shocking. A lot of them are like really dark humor. I think the first one and still probably the funniest yet like kind of fucked up funny one that I saw was someone being like me signing up to another anatomy class to try and get over my boyfriend's death. And then it like cuts the Gangnam style like transition and it's like his body being on the operating table. (laughs) Like it's like really fucked up. Like I shouldn't laugh because that's like incredibly traumatic for the person who wrote that like TikTok, but it's like funny because it's so absurd. Like the odds of that happening are just so low that it's darkly comedic, right? Like that's funny and it's traumatic. Like it's a trauma that that person turned into humor, but it actually is kind of funny. Do we suspect that that's real? It doesn't matter if it's real. Yeah, I guess. We suspect that it's real. Yeah. Like they're writing about it like it's a real thing that happened. They're in the video. Like, but I don't think it matters if it's real because that's sure. not really the point. Sure. The point is that they told us something traumatic that happened to them in a funny, light-hearted way in this trend, and we eat that shit up because we love, like, fucked-up stories. And that was funny. Like, I didn't really have a problem with that trend. But I liked the video, and then I started to get more of those trends on my For You page, and they were just, like, steadily becoming... Actually, not even steadily. They were just more fucked up, <laughs> like, just, like, jarringly. It was very jarring. One of the ones I saw was somebody... I'm not going to, like, actually just say exactly what they said because I don't remember and I don't care, but it was basically them revealing that they were, like, sexually assaulted by their uncle. And I saw, like, quite a few of, like, incest rape ones like that and they were really dark. And, like, this, is, this isn't funny. Like, this is fucked up. <laughs> like, this is not funny and I don't want to see, like, sexual assault rape content from family. Like, I don't want to see incest rape content on my TikTok for you page and this is not a trend and I don't think this is funny. This is really quite disturbing, but I think like this thing about like airing the most bizarre, most traumatizing life experience to the soundtrack of Gangnam Style. For some people, I imagine it was cathartic Mm. and it was like a way to like make light of their trauma and like bond with other people who like may have had similar traumas. But it's also just trauma dumping. Like, and I'm surprised at like how much people accept trauma dumping on TikTok. For those of you who don't know what trauma dumping is, it's not like an official psychological terminology um but it is something that i think is i think it's a very useful term it can be kind of traced on twitter back to like 2018 by youtuber and podcaster ruben angel who tweeted just because i am a survivor advocate and write about rape culture regularly does not give you permission to trauma dump on me and essentially refers to the unsolicited sharing of like a trauma to you kind of without you asking and without checking if you're like in the capacity to receive that information or interact with it. It's people just like telling you fucked up things and you're just like, um, don't know how to react to that. And it happens a lot. I feel like, I mean, it's been happening to me for quite a while. Like after, you know, especially kind of in the earlier days of my account when I was a lot more active on there. I'm just not as active anymore because it's gone a bit too big to manage responding to everybody all the time. But back when I used to talk to a lot of the people that would message me, I would get like 
people messaging me and just like telling me about the really traumatic experience that they had. And I understand why they did that. Like they, they felt like I would understand them. Uh, they wanted to hear, they trust my opinion and they want me to like maybe validate them or maybe explain their circumstances to them if they're like still coming to terms with it. But for me, it was like, I just randomly get an unsolicited story that is like incredibly distressing to listen to. And it puts me in an uncomfortable position now of like either having to comfort you or guide you and I'm like not in a position to do either and like Instagram DMs are a very localized very specific example of that because it is that person messaging you with the intention to talk to you specifically about it and it's like not public but TikTok is interesting because I would argue that these like trends are still trauma dumping because they aren't like you're not talking to a friend like you're putting that out there in the world and it might not feel real because it's like you can't see the people you are sending it to you know that's just how the internet works it's hard to feel like everything is real but it is real and unlike instagram where it's a curated feed so i only see content from people i follow i get content from everybody on tiktok and i get like the randomest shit on my for you page and then yeah suddenly i know that this girl was raped by her uncle and like i don't know what to do with that information you know that's a really good point um, even just talking about the differences in Instagram and TikTok and just other social media platforms. I feel like- Well, even Tumblr, like that's a huge difference. Is that with Tumblr, you only got content from people you follow. Exactly. So in Instagram, you search content down for the most part. And it's on Tumblr, curated. You, you search it down and it's curated by you in a way. But the For You page or just for TikTok more generally, you don't search content down, but content finds you. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why- people find TikTok so sort of amusing and addictive. Yeah, like I love TikTok. Because it knows you better than, you know, even your closest partner does. Mate, TikTok knows me better than I know myself. I swear I get like these random TikTok videos on my For You page that will be like, put a finger down if... You know, and it'll be like one of those joke ones. So you're not actually meant to put all your fingers down because it's actually just one point the whole time. And it's maybe also a form of trauma dumping, whatever. But like, it'll be like a really hyper niche specific thing that you experience. And I don't know how the fuck TikTok knows because these like videos don't even have like that many likes. So I don't know how it knows that I have these deep seated insecurities or feelings or whatever. TikTok it knows, knows. It knows I'm an eldest brown daughter. It knows I have a white boyfriend it knows that i'm south asian it knows roughly my age it knows roughly my education because i also like the memes that i get are for people who have like a bachelor's degree <laughs> like it literally knows everything about me it's pretty wild yeah unlike maybe tumblr and like other things where you're just somebody interacting with people that you like tiktok is deciding who you interact with which is why these tiktoks can be so jarring but that's also the point it sounds like with you know the Oprah gundam style uh, music uh, and with how jarring those TikToks are, how shocking they're meant to be. Like, that's the point. It's very, like, ironic. You know, it's this poppy background music. And then as it yeah. drops, there's something which is quite shocking. And that's fine. And that's interesting. And that may be even a way to express trauma. But even in the difference of platform, there's other places you can express that where you can in- choose to opt into that sort of discussion. Whereas the For You page, there's no opting in. You're not consenting to having this thing literally dumped on you. I mean, that's why it's trauma dumping. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, even outside of the Gangnam Style trend, because that's quite maybe maybe a sanitized version of the trend because sure. it's still funny and, and interesting and it's like the videos are only like, you know, 15 seconds. But like I get videos pop up on my For You page, like three-minute video of somebody just talking to the camera, like detailing their trauma. And I'm like, why the fuck am I seeing this? I'm always like, you know, like a long press, uninterested because I don't, 
have the capacity to like be that person for these people and I don't want to be and I don't want to be like even if I was in a space like I I don't think people realize that like secondhand PTSD is like a thing and you can be traumatized by listening to somebody else's experiences and like it is traumatic to listen to fucked up stories about other people like that does affect you and that is something that happens but yeah so like TikTok there is a lot of trauma dumping on there and I don't know. I mean, I think there's a thin line between like, you know, having a safe space where you can like share your experiences and like talk freely about your trauma to an audience that like wants to listen to you and interact with you and then just not really understanding boundaries and appropriateness and just, you know, kind of really needing that validation and throwing it out into the wind. Just essentially throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks kind of content where you're like, I desperately, maybe I don't know that I need this validation, but I do for like a million reasons. You know, there are a lot of reasons that drive you to that point. But either way, I don't love trauma dumping and I'm concerned about how normalized it is on TikTok and I'm concerned about how romanticized it is on TikTok. And one of the ways and maybe reasons that it is romanticized is like the idea of trauma bonding, which is probably also another phrase that you have heard if you like are anywhere near trauma talk, because I feel like it is very often overused, but like constantly used on TikTok to describe two people becoming friends or bonding like over a shared trauma. And what I find interesting as well, and maybe just important to note, is that this isn't actually what trauma bonding means uh, in like psychology. I came across a Twitter thread, which was actually like, y'all are using trauma bonding incorrectly. And I was like, what? Because I thought it was exactly- Yeah, that's how we use it. That's how we use it. And that's how a lot of people are using it. But trauma bonding isn't simply when you bond with others through shared trauma. It's specifically when an abuser and a victim bond through these sort of vicious cycles of highs and lows- uh, and it's it's more about the relationship between an abuser and yeah, a it's about bonding with your abuser and because of the trauma. I also think I saw in that thread I was like, okay, I didn't know that, but also people were very elitist, being like, oh, you can tell the people using trauma bonding in this way are like stupid or don't read or have no idea what they're talking about. But I think it's still useful to use that yeah. term, even if we're using it in a slightly twisted or incorrect way, because it's literally what's happening. We're talking about people bonding through trauma. So that's just a sort of- Yeah, like maybe people aren't using it as a term. Maybe people are just using it as like a verb. Two words. Like they are literally like bonding yes. over trauma. So, so that's just a clarification. When we say, trauma, when we say bonding, trauma bonding, we mean it in the most sort of literal way. Yeah. So trauma bonding is really big on TikTok. It's a really popular term. People like trauma dump. So they share like really harrowing stories about their experiences with an audience that maybe didn't necessarily consent to being dragged into that conversation but that's fine because a lot of people especially on tiktok especially in these like filter bubbles these like echo chambers are pretty happy to like enable and accommodate that behavior and then people in the comments will be like oh my god like i have experienced the same thing too or like i really relate to what you've said and like that provides validation for the person sharing the story and the person in the comments as well and then they trauma bond so they actually like develop a bond or a friendship or like some kind of positive relationship because they've experienced the same trauma so trauma bonding is really big on trauma talk because trauma talk is a community like it's a hashtag that is like millions of views and like people scroll through trauma talk because they're looking for other people to trauma bond with and i say to trauma bond with and not just to make friends with because like i don't think they're the same thing when you like make friends with somebody like you know you kind of know about them as a person you know who they are maybe their likes and dislikes usually become friends with them through like a shared interest a mutual interest whatever But I think trauma bonding is like backwards friendship because friendship like starts 
level one and then you kind of work your way up to like intimacy at least that's what I think a healthy friendship should be. And trauma bonding is like you start on like level 100 and then you work your way down. So you start with finding out like the most deep things that these people are like super insecure about or like are scared to show the world like these really intimate details of their life. You start with knowing those because you like are on the same, like you're in the same community. And then when you bond over your shared trauma, maybe you've had like similar experiences of like familial rape or like whatever then you get to know each other and then you become friends like uh, like maybe past that maybe even not though because a lot of these like friendships quote-unquote friendships are like purely limited to like a shared trauma they don't like extend outside of that i mean it's not the healthiest way to create friendships because building a friendship on an unresolved trauma where you have specific needs that you need met and both of you have the same needs and the same trauma like is inherently kind of going to have conflict if you can't provide the other person with the same care that you can't provide yourself. But I mean, maybe I am starting to go on a tangent. The point that I'm trying to make is that trauma dumping and trauma bonding, while like not necessarily super healthy behaviors, are really common and popular on TikTok because people really feel the need to like be understood. But maybe more than that, like people feel the need to belong to a community. I think it's about in-groups because, like, I mean, identity politics are, like, pretty toxic on Tumblr. On Tumblr. Oh, my God. On TikTok. They're the same thing. <laughs> you can just use them interchangeably. Interchangeably. They were problematic on Tumblr and now they're problematic on TikTok. And actually, you know what? In the same ways, because this is a slight deviation from trauma, but I think it's, like, the same concept, is, like, back in the day, it was quite... I don't know. Saying trendy or in seems a bit callous, but I can't think of a more fitting word. But it was, like, kind of like in to be like depressed or have depression or anxiety or an eating disorder they were like considered like fashionable mental health issues to have there was a lot of self-diagnosing which i'm not not particularly against i don't think you need the institution to confirm your mental illness but there was like a lot of maybe bad faith self-diagnosing of teens on tumblr for the sake of like being part of these marginalized identities Because if you are part of these people who like have these debilitating illnesses, then you are immediately more sympathetic. You were considered like deep and like complex and interesting and not like other girls even in a way. And it was just like it was it was quite worrying because like the last thing you want to do is romanticize these deadly illnesses. I mean, anorexia has a 20 percent mortality rate. That is one in five people who have anorexia die from it. It's fucked up. Like, this is not cute. (laughs) But I feel like we're kind of seeing that again as well on TikTok, but just not with the same illnesses. First of all, because anxiety and depression are way, way, way more normalized now. And it's like assumed that most people I meet are as depressed and anxious as I am. And it's like not a big deal. And also like conversations around eating disorders are thankfully in, I think, much better circumstances. Like we can talk about these things like they are not good things that we have to like help people recover from, not like romantic things but even now like on tiktok it's one step further now that anxiety and depression are like normal quote-unquote disorders or illnesses to have you need to be more traumatized in order to have the same amount of clout that people on tumblr used to have in like 2014 and that means complex trauma complex trauma that can still be romanticized because it is not like people on tiktok as far as i'm aware are not romanticizing like schizophrenia or like bipolar disorder or like more complex illnesses they're romanticizing like a specific trauma one that you can still kind of be romanticized in it's not like weird quote unquote you're not like unpalatable as a person there's like still aesthetics involved well it gives you like a sense of complexity 
Yes, exactly. Sure. Complexity, but without like you being weird and unrelatable. Right, right. It's pretty common on TikTok for a lot of like teens to self-diagnose ADHD and autism, which again, while I'm not like opposed to the idea of self-diagnosing, I also think that a lot of people are just doing it because like that is kind of, it's associated with clout right now and you're different and you're cool and you're interesting. There's like a whole nother conversation to be had about TikTok and the pathologizing of like very average, normal, common behaviors, just like the pathologizing of literally everything. But in the day of identity politics, especially identity politics that are like toxic, is the idea that people are not allowed to have a stake in a conversation or an issue unless they are directly affected by it. I mean, we see it, I think, you know, commonly and I think fair in like conversations about race, for example. Like as a woman of color, I have more authority around racism and conversations around than Mitch does. Like, yeah, that makes sense because I have lived experience in this topic and it directly affects me in a way that you will never understand. But I think TikTok like takes that one step further with trauma in particular. And there is then like authority with that trauma if you have experienced it. And now you can have a stake in this issue and talk about it because you've experienced that trauma. I feel like like the simplest way to explain it is in terms of sexual assault. I see a lot of people like will talk about rape culture, sexual assault statistics, you know, even just like misogynistic behavior that they find uncomfortable, whatever, like problematic things that men do often. And then in the comments, somebody will like trauma dump as a preface to their point in order to make you pay attention to that point and to give them authority on that topic. So somebody will be like, yeah, you know, insert opinion on this issue. And I can say that because I was brutally raped at 16 in these circumstances and it'll be like quite detailed like people will tell you really messed up details about their life and be like so I can say that and I just like I actually really can't stand that like because we shouldn't have to force sexual assault victims or survivors to like disclose their trauma in order to like have a stake in a conversation but that is the situation right now and then like more than that it's not even just authority it becomes about clout because then there's like a whole bunch of people being like, I am so sorry that that happened to you. You're so strong. This is really fucked up. Like, how did you, you know, I can't even imagine. And those are all like fair and reasonable responses to a really fucked up thing that happened to somebody. But it also like then develops another thing where like, it's a really sick popularity in a way. Sure. Right. It becomes almost like a competition mm-hmm. of sorts. And I think, I mean, I always take issue with this idea of involuntary disclosure, like this Mm -hmm. idea that you always need to be completely open. I mean, I've been sort of more interested in ideas of like opacity or being sort of not always completely visible, sometimes trying to be invisible, you know? And I think these platforms can often demand that you need to bear everything about you as a prerequisite to engage in any sort of discussion. Like everything needs to be biographical. Yes. And like with trauma dumping and trauma talk and all that stuff, like it's not even just limited to like having a stake into this particular opinion. It's everything. It's you can't criticize me because I have experienced X trauma. And it's like trauma has become a shield on TikTok. So there are so many different elements to it. On the one hand, it's like romantic. You are like more deep and complex and poetic and, you know, just like a far more interesting and self-aware individual because you have experienced this trauma. Like there, especially with women, I think on TikTok, there's a real like 
corner of like, I understand the world differently. I'm not like other girls. I have experienced a trauma. And then on the flip side of that, this trauma as like an inability to be criticized. This issue comes up a lot in like racism with TikTok. So there's a lot of white women, I will say, on TikTok that are like quite racist. And then they'll just say, oh, but like I have X, Y, Z traumas that allow me to be racist. So an example is like, I had a negative experience with a black man and therefore I'm allowed to be scared of all black men and think all black men are aggressive bad people because I had this experience and that's just my trauma and it's you know it's the same as just not trusting men in general and it's like no it's not the same actually because there are like a bunch of racial stereotypes feeding your opinion but when you say those things it's like you're actually ableist because they have this trauma that they're dealing with. It's just like identity politics at its worst, you know, identity politics at its most reductive. So we've gone through all the problems with like trauma dumping and trauma bonding, but like the real pull into that, like the real appealing part of that is like the in-group, is the community, is like feeling like you have other people that identify with you, that understand you, and that like in a way, like sometimes it can be a little bit of a circle jerk as well, I think. There's like a bit of a, yeah, we see the world better than everybody else does which again is tumblr repeating itself there was this fucking quote on tumblr and that was like everywhere when i was on it a few years ago that was all over the place and it was essentially that like you know depressed people aren't depressed they just see the world as it is or like something along those lines it was more dramatic than that though but i feel like that's kind of what trauma talk is on tiktok now as well where it's like oh we're just we're just more woke than everybody else like we just see the world for as fucked up as it is which like I mean, probably, like, in some capacity, that's not necessarily wrong. But there is, like, an, a, there is like a weird holier-than-thou in-group with trauma talk where, like, if you belong to trauma talk, you, like, know something other people don't. And, like, I don't know, you're more complex. Which, like, everybody is traumatized. <laughs> everybody has trauma, but not everybody is on trauma talk. And I think that. I see another appeal to it as well, which is that trauma is often really, really difficult to talk about. I mean, that's one of the reasons you go to therapy because you understand that you're experiencing trauma, but it's often formless. It's difficult to put into words. And I was just been, I've just been thinking about this like Gangnam style trend and even just memes generally on trauma talk is that they give you almost a genre to express something that you have difficulty expressing. And I perhaps making these videos, especially if it's like a meme, especially if there's a form, a structure already given to you that you can apply your own experience You just fill in the blanks. Yeah, exactly. You fill in the blanks and then perhaps your own trauma suddenly is a bit more articulable. I really see the appeal to that, but it's more complicated than that when it's working on TikTok because I think it's fine. Like, yeah, you, you should work, whether it's by yourself or, you know, through therapy to make sense of trauma, to be able to put words to something that just seems impossible to express. And I think like, in general, I don't have a problem with it. Exactly. There's, look, there's a reason that we're talking about trauma talk and not exactly. just trauma on social media. Yeah, the talk because, part is important. Yeah, because we've never talked about this in a Tumblr context or in like an Instagram context before. And I mean, I've definitely been on the receiving end of trauma dumping for a while now. We've never really talked about it because I don't think it's like a deep societal problem. It's like whatever, especially in like curated social media where like people can choose to opt in and out of your trauma dump. So it's not really a trauma dump anymore because... Because, like, you have a consenting audience who, like, can choose to partake in this or not. But the reason we're talking about this now, and I mean, I know I sound really harsh in this episode. I don't hate people for trauma dumping. I just think that, like, the way it happens on TikTok 
could use some refining. The reason we're talking about it now is because TikTok has a very specific relationship to trauma in the sense that it commodifies it. Trauma on TikTok for users is an identity. Like first and foremost, trauma, that's why it's trauma talk. Because it's a community where the defining trait of everybody in it is that they are dealing with a trauma, which like that is the point. That is what it is first and foremost. And that is what it is at its deepest level is it's not just about working through trauma. It's about labeling yourself as somebody who has trauma that they are experiencing and then having like a support group. But in order to even do that on TikTok, you need to be creating content about your trauma. Like that's what you're doing. That's how you find your audience, how you find your people is you have to make a video about trauma and not just that it has to be a video that is entertaining that has a beginning middle and end that has a punchline that has a structure of some kind that fulfills a meme format that is educational but you actually have to create like interesting even fun content about your trauma in order for it to find people on trauma talk and when you think about that I think with TikTok, we can see trauma as evolving, not as just your identity, but as like a commodified product that you put out onto TikTok in order to find the community that you're looking for. And by anchoring your identity in trauma, what you're really doing is actually creating a marketable persona because all apps, not just TikTok, all apps, you're, you're a marketable person on them. Facebook is a good example of that. It knows everything about you, your age, whatever. And then you have targeted ads. While the TikTok ads are not the same as like a Facebook ad, it is still an app that gathers your data. It is still an app that we don't actually know a lot about as well. And it is an app that needs you to create content for it to function. And it's also an app that is notoriously amazing at knowing you perfectly. And you were just saying before, you know, like the app knows all these things about you, like race, life, circumstances, education, etc. So that only works. TikTok only functions if it can get you to open up about yourself, whether it's voluntarily or involuntarily. And Trauma Talk works the same way. It's yeah, it's like this forced opening, this involuntary opening. And by showing that side of yourself, it's also giving TikTok perhaps more fodder to greater understand you to further integrate you into this marketplace of advertising, algorithmic economies, platform capitalism, etc. Yeah, exactly. Like it's you're giving your deepest, darkest secrets to TikTok as well as the people that you talk to. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But like, I think it's important to remember that no matter how like niche your trauma is, no matter how like unhinged you think your socials are, that this data is always going to be sellable and marketable. And TikTok, like, it encourages you to create trauma content. It's benefiting from it actively. There's a reason that people do this. While I think the key features that encourage you to, like, be on Trauma Talk is, like, the validation that you find, you know, the love that you can find, the bonding that you can find, the safe space. But also, like... TikTok is benefiting and encouraging your trauma content through that as well. Like the ability, just like the affordances, the ability to like comment, the ability to like put out a video and then like have the right people find it and comment on it is what encourages you to make another video. You know, like it's a positive feedback loop in a way. And also like that engagement is addictive whether or not it's good. Like this is something that we know is that engagement is addictive. People love that dopamine hit of a like or a comment, even when it's a bad comment. It's why so many of us stay on social media, even when we get trolled, lol, me, for an example, you know, like because social media at its core is addictive and TikTok is probably the most addictive social media out there. And another thing that is addictive is surprisingly 
negative emotions. Like there's a reason that TikTok and Trauma Talk with, you know, hundreds of millions of views over, you know, 500 million, I think in, you know, 600 millions, that, that hashtag Trauma Talk, there's a reason trauma is so popular on TikTok. And it's because TikTok and also all social media platforms know, and studies have shown this, that negative emotions keep you engaged more than positive ones. I think there's this sense or this narrative that social media sort of makes people like docile or helps you disassociate by feeding you content that makes you happy, that makes you feel good. Like the internet is just all cute cat Makes you forget about the horrors in your life. And this is actually, I mean, this may be random, but I imagine a lot of listeners have watched that, you know, Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. And the whole sort of thing in that with the caricature of the tech billionaire is that technology makes people not pay attention to the world around them. It makes people not care about climate change. It makes people not care about all these issues because it just makes, it enforces happiness. It's enforced happiness all the time. That's actually not the case. Like that's a narrative that people proclaim is true about social media, but social media actually works by making you angry. Negative emotions like anger, fear, anxiety, and depression is what keeps you on social media. And they know this. So we have to think about how trauma functions as a commodity for TikTok and a really attractive commodity and how it profits and how it works by being addictive and engaging through the spread of negative emotions. I'm not saying negative emotions are bad. I'm not like moralizing the emotion, but I'm just saying that emotions such as fear or lingering with trauma is more profitable than emotions like happiness or feeling like you can change things. And I was talking to this postgrad student who uh, tutored uh, a unit I did a few years ago, and they were doing their uh, PhD on researching the ways that social media produces feelings like FOMO, insecurity, and depression. Because like I said, it's often the narrative that such emotions are a negative byproduct of social media platforms, like an unintended consequence of platforms just becoming ubiquitous. But her argument was that this is not actually a side effect, but it's the main effect. It's the point. Social media platforms are designed to produce such feelings because it's what keeps users hooked. Yes. And then if you like read about TikTok, there's, you know, a million articles and surveys now about how TikTok encourages trauma content. Like it will push you down eating disorder rabbit holes. It'll it'll constantly show you like more trauma. Like that's what it does. There was a study where like a hundred bots, you know, like had TikTok accounts and then they just wanted to see like what happens like with the algorithm. And like, it's kind of just shown that TikTok encourages trauma content, not just trauma talk, but like literally any content that is like kind of disturbing or distressing that will freak you out and scare you. Like TikTok encourages that it has that this is like, I feel like at this point quite, undisputed by literally everybody except TikTok who obviously does dispute it but yeah like there's a reason for that like it's not coincidental it can seem people are like but why why would TikTok like do that to me why would TikTok send me down these rabbit holes why does YouTube send people down like these conspiracy rabbit holes and it's because like these feelings are like what keeps you there that's how these products work so to like kind of bring this all back to trauma talk it's like I don't know. I know I sounded really harsh. I don't mean to moralize people that like talk about their trauma on TikTok. Like if that is a safe space for you where you have people that understand you, then that's great. And I'm happy for you. But like, I think we're not critical enough about like what we give to social media platforms and how those platforms use us and use our trauma and use our negative emotions like for their own stakes and also the stakes they have in making sure we don't heal from those traumas as well because then they wouldn't be able to like use us for them anymore 
you know, with like trauma talk. And I think one of my key issues with it, because it's like we all have trauma. I've definitely got my share of traumas that I have to deal with. But one of the reasons I'm critical of trauma talk and like the romanticizing, the glorification of trauma bonding and trauma friendships and trauma this and trauma that is that we start to anchor our identities onto trauma. We start to not really have a personality outside of it or we treat trauma not as like a thing that is forced upon us, a thing that happens to us, but more as like an intrinsic factor or a part of our personality that is inalienable to who we are. And I think that is dangerous because for one thing, it doesn't encourage growth. It doesn't encourage us to like heal from our trauma, to work on it, to liberate ourselves from it, to liberate others from the same circumstances that traumatized us. That's a really big part of anti-capitalism, you know, is like changing the functions of society so it's not as traumatic for all the reasons that it is. Instead, what these trauma talk groups can do is reinforce your trauma Every time you log on into those groups and you talk about it and you share it, it's not always about healing. Sometimes it's just about reinforcing that this is who you are. You are this trauma. It, you know, permeates every aspect of your being. It informs every one of your decisions. This is just who you are. And once these traumas define us and we start to rely on these communities, what happens is we start to rely on TikTok. We start to rely on the app. We start to need these platforms which are actually not really helping us and they're just reinforcing trauma as an identity rather than as an experience, it's just not helpful for anyone really in the long term. And my worry is that we kind of lose sight of the broader goal, which is if not to heal from our trauma, then to at least alleviate trauma from others and not reinforce it. And we also lose sight of the fact that like TikTok is not just a neutral platform or tool that we use. It is a platform slash corporation with agency. It has its own goals that it wants to fulfill. And the app benefits from us becoming reliant on its communities for validation. It commodifies us. It commodifies our trauma. And our trauma is not for the commodification of an app. Our trauma is something that we work through as human beings, ourselves. So while I'm not saying don't post on TikTok or don't get into trauma talk, like if that is helpful for you, then go for it. But do be critical of TikTok and do be critical of trauma as an identity because it's not an identity. Trauma is not an identity. It's something that happens to you. And when we start to get attached to the idea of trauma as an identity, the only person that really benefits from that is TikTok. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you guys, our lovely, lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny, Sarah Wallace, Pia, Selka Kanyo, Liz, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. And who knows, maybe I'll post something. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM us on Instagram or you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you do. Cool. Thanks. 
拜。